0: Hello friends, and welcome back to Bitching About the Decameron. We are up to the 10th day out of our 10 day long frame tale, and we're up to the fourth story having just heard about a somewhat absurdly generous character. Miraculous indeed did it seem to all those present that anyone should be liberal with his own blood and everyone agreed that Nathan's generosity had indeed exceeded that of the King of Spain or the Abbot of Cluny. But after they had debated the matter at some length, the King fixed his gaze on Loretta, thus showing that he wanted her to tell the next story, and Loretta began as follows. Fair young ladies, so goodly and magnificent are the things we have been told, so fully has the ground already been covered. That those of us who have not yet told our tales would surely be left with no area to explore, unless, of course, we turn to the deeds of lovers, wherein a most copious supply of tales on any topic is always to be found. For this reason, and also because matters of this sort are especially fascinating for people of our age, I should like to tell you of a generous deed performed by one who was in love. And if it is true that in order to possess the object of their love, men will give away whole fortunes, set aside their enmities, and place their lives, their honour, and, what is more important, their reputation in serious jeopardy, then possibly you will conclude, all things considered, that his action was no less striking than some of the ones already described. In Bologna, then, that illustrious city in the Lombard plain, there once lived a gentleman called Messer Gentile de Caracendi, distinguished for his valour and noble blood, who, while still in his youth, became enamoured of a gentlewoman. Madonna Catalina by name, who was the wife of a certain Nicoluccio Caccianimico. But because his love for the lady was ill-requited, he almost despaired of it and went away to Medina, where he had been appointed to the office of Podesta. At the time of which we are speaking, Nicoluccio was absent from Bologna, and his wife, being pregnant, was staying at an estate of his some three miles distant from the city where she had the misfortune to contract a sudden and cruel malady, whose effects were so powerful and serious that all sign of life in her was extinguished, and consequently she was adjudged even by her physicians to be dead. Since her closest women relatives claimed to have heard from her own lips that she had not been pregnant sufficiently long for the unborn creature to be perfectly formed, they troubled themselves no further on that score, and after shedding many tears they buried her, just as she was, in a tomb in the local church. Now, that's an interesting note, that her closest women relatives are essentially called upon to testify to the length of her pregnancy, uh, with the implication that if her pregnancy was sufficiently advanced, that the unborn baby would be able to survive, something would have been done about it. I'm sure that's not foreboding anything at all. The news of the lady's demise was immediately reported to Messer Gentile by one of his friends, and despite the fact that she had never exactly smothered him with her favours, he was quite overcome with sorrow. But at length he said to himself, So, Madonna Catalina, you are dead. You never accorded me so much as a single glance when you were alive, but now that you are dead and cannot reject my love, I am determined to steal a kiss or two from you. What the fuck, Giovanni? Like, I mean, the, hey, you're dead so you can't stop me is a whole thing, but we're just, she's also dead. She's a corpse. The fuck? Night had already fallen, and having made arrangements to depart in secret, he took horse with one of his servants, riding without pause till he came to the place where the lady was buried. Having opened up the tomb, he made his way cautiously inside, and lying down beside her, he drew his face to hers and kissed her again and again, shedding tears profusely as he did so. But as every woman knows, no sooner does a man obtain one thing, especially if he happens to be in love, than he wants something else. And just as Messer Gentile had made up his mind to tarry there no longer, he said to himself... Ah, why should I not place my hand gently on her breast, now that I am here? I have never touched her before, and I shall never have another opportunity. Again, she is a fucking corpse. The fuck? And so, overcome by this sudden longing, he placed his hand on the lady's bosom, and after keeping it there for some little time, he thought he could detect a faint heartbeat. Whereupon, upon subduing all his fears, he examined her more closely and discovered that she was in fact still alive, though the actual signs of life were minimal and very weak. He then removed her from the tomb as gently as possible with the aid of his servant, and having set her across his saddle-bow, he conveyed her in secret to his house in Bologna. "'Well, that's… that has potential to go horribly wrong, but at least she's alive.' His mother, a wise and resourceful woman, was living in the house, and on hearing her son's lengthy account of all that had happened, she was filled with compassion, and skilfully restored Catalina to life by putting her in a warm bath and then setting her in front of a well-stoked fire. On coming to her senses, she cast a deep sigh and said, Alas, where am I now? Because, let's remember everybody, she passed out from a sudden and cruel malady in her own home some three miles outside of Bologna and has now woken up in a completely unknown location. Don't worry, the worthy lady replied, you are in good hands. When she had fully recovered her wits, she looked about her and discovered to her amazement that she was in totally strange surroundings, with Messer Gentile standing before her. She turned to his mother and asked her to explain how she came to be there, whereupon Messer Gentile gave her a faithful account of all that had happened. At this she began to sob, but eventually she thanked him as best she could and implored him out of the love he had borne her and his sense of honour to do nothing to her in his house that would bring herself or her husband into discredit, and to let her return home as soon as daylight came. "'My lady,' replied Messer Gentile, "'no matter how deeply I may have yearned in former times, "'I have no intention either now or in the future,' since God has granted me this favour of restoring you to life on account of the love I once bore you, of treating you otherwise than as a very dear sister, either here or anyone else. Oh, good. But the office I have performed tonight on your behalf deserves some kind of reward, and hence I trust you will not deny me the favour I am about to ask of you. (sighs) The lady graciously signified her willingness to grant him the favour, provided it lay in her power to do so and there was nothing improper about it. So Messer Gentile said, My lady, all your kinsfolk and all the people in Bologna firmly believe you to be dead, so that no one in your house is expecting you. Hence I should like you to be so kind as to stay here quietly with my mother until I return from Medina, which will be quite soon. My reason for asking you this is that I propose to make a precious gift of you to your husband, in a formal ceremony to which all the leading citizens will be invited. The lady was longing to gladden her kinsfolk with the news of her return from the dead, but since she acknowledged her debt to Messer Gentile and saw nothing wrong in this request, apparently, she resolved to do as he had asked, and she pledged him her word to that effect. Scarcely had she finished giving him her answer than she felt the first indications that she was about to be delivered of her child, and not long afterwards, with the tender assistance of Messer Gentile's mother, she gave birth to a handsome boy. This event increased a thousandfold the happiness of both Messer Gentile and herself, and after ordering that she should have everything she needed, and that she was to be treated exactly as though she were his own wife, Messer Gentile returned in secret to Medina. When the period of his office at Medina came to an end, and he was on the point of returning to Bologna, he arranged that on the morning of his arrival, a great and splendid banquet should be given at his house for a large number of the city's notables, including Nicoluccio Cacianemico. Upon his arrival, he dismounted and went to join his guests, having first called on the lady to find that she was looking healthier and lovelier than ever, and that her small son was also fit and well. And then, with matchless cordiality, he showed his guests to the table, and saw that they were regally wined and dined. When the meal was approaching its end, Messer Gentile, having previously told the lady what he intended to do and arranged with her concerning the manner in which she was to comport herself, got up and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, I recall having once been told that in Persia there is a custom highly agreeable to my way of thinking, whereby when a person wishes to pay the highest honour to a friend, he invites him to his house and shows him the thing he holds most dear, whether it be his wife, his mistress, his daughter, or what you will, at the same time declaring that if it were possible to do so, he would even more readily show him the very heart from his body and I propose that we should observe this self-same custom here in Bologna. You have been good enough to honour my banquet with your presence, and I now intend to honour you in the Persian style by showing you the most precious thing I possess, or am ever likely to possess. But before doing this, I would ask you to give me your opinion upon the problem that I am about to place before you. A certain person has in his house a good and most loyal servant, who suddenly falls seriously ill. The gentleman in question without waiting for the ailing servant to breathe his last, has him thrown onto the street, and takes no further interest in him. Then a stranger comes along, who taking pity on the invalid, conveys him to his house, where with much loving care and at much expense he restores him to his former state of health. Now what I should like to know is whether, if the second gentleman keeps him and uses his services, the first has any reasonable ground for complaint or regret when he demands to have him back, and is refused. I don't like where this is going. I don't consider... I I don't like where this is going. Messagentile's noble guests, having discussed the various pros and cons among themselves, all reached the same conclusion. And since Nicoluccio Cacenumico was a gifted and eloquent speaker, they left it to him to deliver their reply. Nicoluccio began by extolling the Persian custom then said that he and his fellow guests were of the unanimous opinion that the first gentleman had no legal claim to the servant, because in the instance cited, he had not only abandoned him, but cast him away, and that on account of the good offices rendered by the second gentleman, it appeared he was entitled to regard the servant as his own, because in refusing to give him up, he was neither causing any trouble, nor offering any insult, nor doing any injury to the first. All the others sitting round the tables, and there was many a worthy gentleman among them, chorused their approval of the answer Nicoluccio had given. And Messer Gentile, delighted with this reply and with the fact that it had come from Nicoluccio himself, affirmed that he too shared their opinion. Then he said, The time has come for me to do you the honour as I promised. And summoning two of his servants, he sent them to the lady, whom he had caused to be regally attired and adorned requesting that she be pleased to come and gladden the gentleman with her presence. Taking her bonny infant in her arms, she descended, accompanied by the two servants, to the hall, where at Messer Gentile's bidding she sat down next to one of the gentlemen, and then he said, Gentlemen, this is the jewel that I cherish above all others, and intend to treasure always. See for yourselves whether you think I have good cause. The gentleman played her eloquent homage, and warmly commended her, and having assured their host that he ought indeed to cherish her, they all began to gaze in her direction. Many of those present would have sworn she was the person she actually was, but for the fact that they understood her to be dead. But the one who gazed most intently of all upon her was Nicoluccio, who was dying to know who she was, and no sooner did his host move aside from the lady than his curiosity got the better of him, and he asked her whether she was a Bolognese or a foreigner. On hearing this question being put to her by her own husband, it was something of an effort for the lady to withhold a reply, but faithful to her instructions, she remained silent. Another of the gentlemen asked whether the infant was hers, and yet another inquired whether she was Messer Gentile's wife, but to neither did she offer any answer. However, they were now rejoined by Messer Gentile, and one of his guests said to him, This jewel of yours is indeed very beautiful, but are we right in thinking she is dumb? Gentlemen, replied Messer Gentile, that she has hitherto remained silent is no small proof of her virtue. You tell us then, replied the other. Who is she? I shall be only too happy to tell you, he replied, provided that you all promise not to move from your places, no matter what I may say, until I have finished speaking. They all gave him their promise, and once the tables had been cleared, Messer Gentile took his seat alongside the lady and said, Gentlemen, this lady is the faithful and loyal servant to whom I was referring in the question I put to you just now. Being little prized by her own people, she was cast like something vile and useless into the gutter, whence I myself retrieved her, and by dint of my loving care I removed her from death's grasp with my own hands. I mean, sort of. Uh, it's a bit of an exaggeration, like, they thought she was dead. And also... Your mother made sure that she was all right, you just happened to be the one to pluck her from the tomb because you were being creepy and weird. In recognition of my pure affection for the lady, yes, sure, God has transformed her from a fearsome corpse into the lovely object that you see before you. But so that you may have a better idea of how this came about, I shall briefly explain the circumstances. And so, much to the amazement of his hearers, He gave a clear account of all that had happened, from the time he had first fallen in love with the lady until that very hour, then added, Therefore, unless you have suddenly changed your opinion, and Nicoluccio especially, this lady belongs to me, as of right, and no one can lawfully demand her return. To this assertion nobody offered any reply, but they all waited to discover what he was going to say next. Nicoluccio, along with one or two others, and the lady herself, dissolved into tears, but Messer Gentile rose to his feet, took the tiny infant in his arms, and, leaning the lady by the hand, walked up to Nicoluccio, saying, "'Stand up now, my friend. "'I shall not restore your wife to you, for she was cast out by your kinsfolk and her own. "'But I wish to present you with this lady, together with her little child, "'of whom you are assuredly the father, though I am his godfather.' And when I held him at his christening, I named him Gentile. Oh, you're a fucking shit, dude. I mean, you've been a bit of a manipulative bastard in this story so far, but Jesus, could you be any more egocentric? Oh my god. Nor should you cherish her any the less for having spent the best part of three months under my roof, for I swear to you in the name of God, who possibly willed that I should fall in love with her so that my love would be the instrument of her deliverance. (laughs) Heh. Dude that she never led a more upright existence with her parents or with you yourself than the life she has lived here in this house under my mother's care. He then turned to the lady and said, I now release you, my lady, from every promise you gave me, and hereby deliver you to Nicoluccio. And having left the lady and the child with Nicoluccio, he returned to his place. Nicoluccio received his wife and son eagerly in his arms, his joy being all the greater for being so totally unexpected, and thanked Messer Gentile to the best of his power and ability. This touching scene moved all the other guests to tears, and they were full of praise for Messer Gentile, as indeed were all those who came to hear of his story. The lady was welcomed home amid scenes of great rejoicing, and for a long time afterwards the people of Bologna regarded her with awe as someone who had returned from the dead. And as for Messer gentile For the rest of his life he remained a close friend of Nicoluccio, as well as of the families of both Nicoluccio and his wife. What are we to conclude, then, gentle ladies? Are we to regard a king who gave away his crown and scepter, an abbot who reconciled an outlaw to the pope at no cost to himself, or an old man who exposed his throat to the dagger of his adversary as being in any way comparable to one who performed so noble a deed as Messer Gentile? For here we have a case of a man in the ardent flush of youth, who, believing himself to be legally entitled to that which the negligence of others had discarded, and which he had the good fortune to retrieve, not only kept his ardour under decent restraint, but on obtaining the very object which he had coveted with his whole being for so long, generously surrendered it. In all conscience, none of the instances previously cited seems to me comparable to this. What the fuck, Giovanni? Seriously? Like, let's just tally this up, shall we? Okay, so Messer Gentile has a crush on this woman that is completely unrequited. She dies. Her family puts her in the fucking tomb. And Messer Gentile is like, oh, well, since she's dead, she can't stop me kissing her and goes and, like, kisses her corpse and embraces her and then believes himself entitled to her in some way because her family thought she was dead, buried her when they thought she was dead, and he happened to notice that she was not. Now, admittedly, the family might be liable for, say, medical negligence for not noticing that, A, she wasn't dead, or that, B, her son was viable outside the womb. But to take somebody, to realise that somebody's not dead, and instead of telling all of her family members, hey, just so you know you messed up, she's alive, you don't have to spend, you know, the next three months, you know, mourning your dead family member. Instead, just, like, kidnapping away her away to your own home for three months, naming her son after yourself so that she and her husband are constantly reminded of this incident for the rest of their fucking lives, holding her in your own house for three months and then presenting her, like, Teasing her and her husband with the idea that actually you might just not let her go back? And, and then letting her go back to, like, the fuck, Giovanni? Every member of the joyful company praised Messer Gentile to the very skies after which the king called upon Amelia to follow. And with a confident air, as though she were longing to speak, she thus began. Dainty ladies, no one can seriously deny that Messer Gentile acted munificently, but if any one should claim that to do more would be impossible, it will not be too difficult to prove that they are wrong, as I propose to show you in this little story of mine. In the province of Friuli, which is cold but richly endowed with beautiful mountains, numerous rivers, and limpid streams. There is a town called Udine, where once there lived a beautiful noblewoman called Madonna Dionora, who was married to a most agreeable and good-natured man, exceedingly wealthy, whose name was Gilberto. Because of her outstanding worth, this lady attracted the undying love of a great and noble lord called Messer Ansaldo Gradense, a man of high repute, Famous throughout the land for his feats of arms and deeds of courtesy. But although he loved her fervently, and did everything he possibly could to persuade her to requite his love, sending her numerous messages to this end, all his efforts were unavailing. Eventually, the lady grew tired of the knight's entreaties, and seeing that however firmly she rejected his approaches, he still persisted in loving and importuning her, she decided to rid herself of him once and for all by requesting him to do something for her that was both bizarre and, as she thought, impossible so one day she said to the woman who regularly came to see her on Messer Ansaldo's behalf, "'My good woman, you have repeatedly assured me that Messer Ansaldo loves me above all else, and offered me numerous gifts on his behalf, all of which I prefer that he should keep, for they could never induce me to love him or submit to his pleasure. If only I could be certain, however, that he loved me as much as you claim, I should undoubtedly bring myself to love him and do his bidding.' so if he will offer me proof of his love by doing what I intend to ask of him, I shall be only too ready to obey his commands. And what is it, ma'am, the good woman asked, that you want him to do? What I want is this, replied the lady. In the month of January that is now approaching, I want a garden somewhere near the town that is full of green plants, flowers and leafy trees, exactly as though it were at the month of May. And if he fails to provide it, let him take good care never to send you or anyone else to me again. For if he should provoke me any further, I shall no longer keep this matter a secret as I have until now, but I shall seek to rid myself of his attentions by complaining to my husband and kinsfolk. On hearing about the lady's proposition, the gentleman naturally felt that she was asking him to do something very difficult, or rather well nigh impossible, and realized that her only reason for demanding such a thing was to dash his hopes but nevertheless he resolved that he would explore every possible means of furnishing her request. He therefore set inquiries afoot in various parts of the world to see whether anyone could be found to advise and assist him in this matter, and eventually got hold of a man who offered to do it by magic, provided he was well enough paid. So, Messer Ansaldo agreed to pay him a huge sum of money, and waited contentedly for the time the lady had appointed and during the night preceding the calends of January, when the cold was very intense and everything was covered in snow and ice, the magician employed his skills to such good effect that in a beautiful meadow not far from the town, there appeared next morning, as all those who saw it bore witness, one of the fairest gardens that anyone had ever seen, with plants and trees and fruits of every conceivable kind. No sooner did Messer Ansaldo feast his eyes upon this spectacle Then he caused a quantity of the finest fruits and flowers to be gathered and secretly presented to his lady, inviting her to come and see the garden she had asked for, so that she would not only realise how much he loved her, but recall the solemn pledge she had given and take steps to keep her word in the manner of a true gentlewoman. The lady had been hearing many reports of the wonderful garden, and when she saw the flowers and the fruits she began to repent of her promise. But for all her repentance, being curious to observe so rare a phenomenon, she went with several other ladies of the town to see the garden, and after commending it greatly and betraying no little astonishment, she made her way home in the depths of despair, thinking of what it obliged her to do. So profound was her distress, in fact, that she was unable to conceal it, with the inevitable result that her husband, noticing how melancholy she looked, demanded to know the reason. For some little time she remained silent, being too embarrassed to say anything but finally he forced her to tell him the whole story from beginning to end. And of course, this problem would not be a problem if the dude had taken a hint, for a start, the woman had been in a position where she could have said, fuck off, in a more direct way, or if it were possible for her to now say, actually, I've changed my mind. But, so the story goes. Gilberto was at first extremely angry, but after mature reflection, bearing in mind the purity of his wife's intentions, he put aside his anger and said, "Dionora, no wise or virtuous woman "'should ever pay heed to messages of that sort, "'nor should she ever barter her chastity with anyone, "'no matter what terms she may impose. "'The power of words received by the heart through the ears "'is greater than many people think,' and to those who are in love nearly everything becomes possible. Hence you did wrong, first of all to pay any heed to him, and secondly to barter with him. But because I know you are acting from the purest of motives, I shall allow you, so as to be quit of your promise, to do something which possibly no other man would permit, being swayed also by my fear of the magician, which Messer Ansaldo, if you were to play him false, would perhaps encourage to do as a mischief. I therefore want you to go to him and endeavour in every way possible to have yourself released from this promise without loss of honour. But if this should prove impossible, just for this once you may give him your body, but not your heart. On hearing her husband speak in this way, the lady burst into tears, maintaining that she wanted no such favour from him. This is really uncomfortable. I don't like it. It's only because I've read the summary and know that this ends without rape that I'm willing to continue. Ugh. No matter how loudly she protested, Gilberto was adamant. And so next morning, just as dawn was breaking, the lady set out, by no means richly adorned, together with one of her maids, and preceded by two of her husband's retainers, she made her way to Messer Ansaldo's house. Messer Ansaldo was astounded to hear that his lady had come, and leaping out of bed he summoned the magician and said to him, I want you to see for yourself how great a prize your skill has procured me. They then descended to meet her, and Messer Ansaldo greeted her courteously and reverentially, without any show of unbridled passion, after which they all made their way into a splendid apartment where a huge fire was burning. After having offered her somewhere to sit, Messer Ansaldo said, My lady, if the love I have so long borne you merits any reward, I beseech you to do me the kindness of telling me truthfully why I have come here at this hour of the day, with so few people to bear you company. To which the lady replied, confused and almost in tears, "'Sir, I am led here not because I love you or because I pledged you my word, but because I was ordered to come by my husband, who, paying more regard to the labours of your unruly love than to his own or his wife's reputation, has constrained me to call upon you, and by his command I am ready to submit for this once to your every pleasure.' Great as Messer Ansaldo's astonishment had been when the lady arrived, his astonishment on hearing her words was considerably greater, and because he was deeply moved by Gilberto's liberality, his ardour gradually turned to compassion. My lady, he said, since it is as you say, God forbid that I should ever impair the reputation of one who shows compassion for my love. With your consent, therefore... Whilst you are under my roof, I shall treat you exactly as though you were my sister, and whenever you choose you shall be free to depart, provided that you convey to your husband all the thanks you deem appropriate for the immense courtesy he has shown me, and that you look upon me always in future as your brother and your servant. The lady was pleased beyond measure to hear these words. As am I, frankly. Nothing could ever make me believe, she said, in view of your impeccable manners, that my coming to your house would have any other sequel than the one which I see you have made of it, for which I shall always remain in your debt. Then, having taken her leave, she returned to Gilberto suitably attended and told him what had happened. And from that day forth, Gilberto and Messer Ansaldo became the closest of loyal friends. After perceiving how liberally Gilberto had behaved towards Messer Ansaldo and Messer Ansaldo towards the lady, The magician said to Messer Ansaldo, as the latter was about to present him with his fee, "'Heaven forbid that after observing Gilberto's generosity in respect of his honour and yours in respect of your love, I should not be equally generous in respect of my reward, and since I know that you can put this sum of money to good use, I intend that you should keep it.' Messer Ansaldo was thrown into confusion and tried in every way possible to make him accept the whole or part of the money, but his efforts were unavailing. And when the magician, having after the third day removed his garden, signified his intention of leaving, he bade him good luck and godspeed. And now that his heart was purged of the lustful passion he had harboured for the lady, he was thenceforth inspired to regard her with deep and decorous affection. What is to be our verdict here, fond ladies? Are we to award pride of place to the instance of a lady who is all but dead, and a love already grown lukewarm through loss of expectation? In preference to the liberality of Messer Ansaldo, whose love was more fervent than ever, being, as it were, inflamed by greater expectation, and who was holding the prize he had so strenuously pursued in the very palm of his hand? In my view, it would be quite absurd to suppose that the first of those generous deeds could be compared with the second. Let me repeat, the first of those generous deeds. The guy who creeped on a woman while she was in her tomb, figured out she was alive and decided to essentially hold her hostage for three months before returning her to her husband but how could that possibly compare to the generosity of a man who was told a woman would be willing to sleep with him found out that she wasn't willing to sleep with him and then decided not to sleep with her truly models of munificence these are Glorious, inspiring. Fuck you, Giovanni. Bitching about the Decameron is created by Gwen Verch David and produced by Amanda Martel. Take care and thanks for listening.